Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel. This is the end of the 15th chapter, and it's going to segue right into the beginning of the 16th chapter. I'm reading this morning from the New Revised Standard Version. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel didn't see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said. He came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and they said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And so he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now when they came, he looked on Eliab, this would have been the firstborn son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but he's not keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, well, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went back to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, Stacy and I got to go to a play last night with Matt and Kathy Abel. We went and saw a great production of God's Bell at Cane Park. And when I fessed up to Matt that I wasn't quite done with my sermon, he very politely informed me that no one would mind if I went a little short this morning. So, <laughs> so we'll see how I do, but if that's the case, you may want to say a little thank you to Matt on your way out. <laughs> if you've been in worship over the last month or so, you may have noticed that the same illustration popped up twice a couple of weeks apart. In a children's moment about a month ago, Jenny showed the kids a picture of a vulture and a hummingbird. And she talked about the sort of sustenance that each of these creatures seeks out on a day-to-day -day basis. She made the connection that we too tend to find what we're looking for. If we're kind of out in the world searching for dead, nasty old garbage, that's probably what we're going to find. But if we're looking for the very best nectar in the heart of a person or a situation, then that is what we are probably going to find. 
Interestingly enough, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, Clark used that very same illustration in his sermon a couple weeks ago. So we seem to be working on a bit of a theme lately, that we tend to get what we are looking for, what we expect. This certainly bears out in our human relationships. I would imagine that every single one of us, whether we are very young or very old, has someone in our life with whom we fall into an argumentative rut because either we or they come into the conversation with a lot of preconceived notions about what the other person is gonna say. I bet you can think of a sister or a brother or a parent or a child or a colleague or a boss or an employee who just always seems to act or behave in the same frustrating way. So you enter the conversation with low expectations and sure enough, that's about always what you get. This morning I wanna suggest to you that this same pattern of expectations occurs in some important areas of our spiritual life as well. For one thing, our preconceived notions can deeply affect the way that we read scripture. So just for fun, we're gonna have a little pop quiz and we're gonna see what assumptions, whether correct or not, we might be carrying into our reading this morning. So first question, who wrote the book of 1 Samuel? Was it Samuel? Was it King David? Was it a group of nomadic sheep herders? Was it an individual or a group we label D? Or do we really not know? How many people think Samuel? I'm going to make you participate. How many people think Samuel wrote the book of 1 Samuel? Ah, too easy. How many of you think King David wrote the book of 1 Samuel? Anyone for the sheep herders? How about answer D, an individual or a group that we call D? Okay, all right. And how about E? We really don't know. Okay, <laughs> a lot of takers on that one. The best answer to this question is probably E. We don't know the name or specific identity of the person or the people who wrote 1 Samuel. And like a lot of biblical texts, we know that it was passed down through stories that were written or that were handed down through oral tradition over a long period of time. However, if you guessed D, you're actually in pretty good company because it is widely believed that an individual or a group of people who were also responsible for the book of Deuteronomy wrote the continuing story in the books that we have now as Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. It's a big continuing story. And we call that the Deuteronomistic history. All right, second question. When did the events that we just read about happen? So this anointing of King David or King David becoming the king of Israel, did that happen in 3000 BCE? 2000 BCE, 1000 BCE, 500, or last Thursday? How many people think it was 3000, or roughly 3000 BCE? Anybody? That's good, that's way back there. <laughs> Anybody think 2000 BCE? 1000 BCE? All right, we got some takers on that one. How about 500 BCE, okay? No one for last Thursday? Okay. <laughs> I knew it. If you guessed C, you're correct. While we have no way of knowing the exact dates of King David's life, it's traditionally been dated from about 1040 to 970. And remember, we're working backwards through the numbers. His reign over Israel is thought to have begun around 1010. So that C answer gives us our best guess for the timeline of what we heard read today. Last question. When was the book of 1 Samuel actually written down? And again, we're speaking roughly. Do we suppose that it was written down in 1000 BCE, right around when it happened? Uh, 850, 700, or 600 BCE? Anyone for A, that it was written down right around when it happened? 
Answer B. Couple. Answer C. Answer D. Lastly. <laughs> there are many, many indications in the surrounding text that tell us that whoever wrote this book lived a lot later um, than the actual events that are described. So why does all this stuff matter? I would suggest to you today that it matters quite a bit, and that it's a shame more people don't have some of this information in their back pocket when they go to read a story like this one. Realizing, for example, that the story was written down a long time after it actually happened might suggest to us that we can't read this as though we're just getting a straight eyewitness account of events. Instead, I think we have to become psychologists or even to some degree mind readers. We get to ask really interesting questions like, what was so important about this story that people remembered it for hundreds of years and then wrote it down? Or we might ask, what does this text tell us about how that community was thinking about God? Does it challenge any of my preconceived notions? Or maybe we even have to ask what preconceived notions the writers had as they wrote this down. So let's take a look at a couple of interesting parts of the text. I think most Christians hold to the idea that God is unchanging and all-knowing. I think if you ask most folks, do you think that God knows the future, that God knows exactly what's going to happen, people would say, yeah, I think that God does. However, our passage this morning forces us to face the possibility that God changes God's mind and doesn't always know exactly how things are going to turn out. If we had read a bunch more text leading into what we heard this morning, we would discover that it was God who appointed Saul to be king in the first place. But the end of chapter 15 says that God was then sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. It certainly appears that for one thing, God was disappointed. He didn't realize how Saul would behave in that role. And perhaps even more surprising, God has had a big change of heart about Saul's worthiness to rule over Israel. So now we have to ask ourselves those interesting questions that we just talked about. Did God actually change God's mind? Did God actually feel regretful about a decision God had made? Or were these biblical authors expressing their own preconceived notions about God, which may or may not be correct? Perhaps a little bit of both. Either way, we're left with an open question, one that we will return to in just a moment. First, though, I want to point out one more, I think, kind of funny thing about this passage. The author makes a point of stating that God looks on, not on the outward appearance of people, but on what's in the heart. And we know that verse. God doesn't look as men and women look. God looks on the interior person. So I think it's kind of weird and interesting that as David is being chosen king, the text says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Kind of sounds like a personal ad for King David. This is not the first time that a text describes a character this way. King Saul earlier is described as tall, strong, and very handsome. Another personal man. Are these qualities that God actually needs in a chosen leader? Or does this tell us something about the expectations of the community that wrote this down? It's ironic, really, that even as they tell us a story that is pretty clearly about God choosing the most unlikely candidate, David was the youngest son, and he would have been stinky and unwashed from being out in the fields tending sheep over the last several months. Even as they tell this story about God choosing the most unlikely candidate, a little bit of their own thinking seems to creep in. Surely God would have chosen someone beautiful and tall and handsome, sort of like the person we would have chosen. 
We could spend a lot more time picking apart this passage, but you've been kind enough to indulge me this far in a bit of a history lesson. So we're going to let those two examples suffice and cut to the chiefs. Uh, there's a quote on your bulletin this morning that I forgot to write in my notes. So Michael, will you read that quote out loud for us? He's going to pull on his own. Yeah, no problem. Right on the front. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. On some level, we all know this to be true. But where our faith is concerned, I think it sounds like really crummy, unsettling news. I mean, how are we ever supposed to know the right answers if everything is subject to our interpretation? If my reading of a text, or even my understanding of God, is always colored by my own preconceived notions, then how do I ever have an objective foundation on which to stand? I want to turn for just a moment to the reading that Stacy read for us from 2 Corinthians. This is a passage that was most likely written by a disciple of Paul, and it has some preconceptions of its own, but we're going to leave that aside for the moment. At the end of the passage, this author says some rather well-known words that have usually been translated, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's how we often hear that passage. But a better translation of these words is, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything is made new. I think this is spectacular and sort of mind-blowing news. It means that your transformation in Christ, actually yours, your transformation in Christ, your decision to throw out some of your preconceived notions can have ripple effects that are literally world-changing. So think about this. What if God could change God's mind about you? Maybe you can surprise God. Maybe we here at Brexville United Methodist Church can surprise God. Perhaps what looks like the inevitable course of human history or church history or our community history doesn't need to be inevitable. Maybe God is changing God's mind about how things should be, or maybe we've never really understood God's mind in the first place. But that may not matter, because the awesome news is that change and transformation and unexpected realities are always possible. Sometimes the natural order of things seems to get turned on its ear, and perhaps that is when God's spirit is really breaking in. Maybe the youngest, stinkiest person really can become a great leader. And maybe we feel the need to retrospectively describe that person as gorgeous in order to make sense of it. But the fundamental principle at stake is that things can change. We can change. You and I can shatter some of our preconceived notions about what it means to be Christian, what it means to follow Christ. We can shatter some of our preconceived notions about people and places or where we might be called to go. Perhaps most important, we can shatter our preconceived notions about our own limitations and stumbling blocks. Because, says the author of 2 Corinthians, from now on, we regard no one, not even ourselves, that's my addition, from a human point of view. So I'm issuing you a little challenge this week, and I'll take it up as well. If you're someone who reads your Bible regularly, perhaps pick a different translation or a commentary that you know is going to challenge the way you usually read scripture. If that's too daunting, try something else. If you're a relater, Choose a person about whom you know you have some preset expectations. 
kick those preconceived notions to the curb, and invite God to help you see them from a Christ-like perspective. Or perhaps you know in your heart of hearts that there is some preconception you've been holding on to about yourself, that you're not smart enough, or popular enough, or disciplined enough, or old enough, or young enough, or wealthy enough to have any real effect on building God's kingdom. Maybe it's time for you to see yourself without that preconceived notion and take to heart that anyone strengthened by Christ has the potential to see the world in a whole new way. Stinky shepherds can become kings. A poor, illiterate kid from Galilee can grow into a man who revealed God into a, in a way so profound and decisive that its effect has been felt for 2,000 years. So drop those preconceived notions. See, everything has been made new. <laughs>